Hey friends, welcome back here to the Semi-Seminary, and here we are, another week, another episode of a Bible study series we're calling The Bible for Grown-Ups. For those of you that are joining us, I just want to refresh your memory on what we talk about when we talk about the Bible for Grown-Ups. It begins with just this basic premise, that most of us who follow the Christian tradition, we were taught the Bible as children, or... Maybe we came to the Christian tradition later in life as adults, but unfortunately, we were taught the Bible as adults, but we were taught the Bible as adults by people who were taught the Bible as children, which means often so many of us are just simply left with a childish understanding of the relationship to God and and God's people in a childish way in which we live in an adult world, sometimes that causes lots of folks just to simply walk away or as they struggle through their spiritual journey what ends up happening is because of this childish understanding of holy scripture they end up thinking the wrong things of God, about God which sometimes not even of their own fault leads to wrong actions towards God So we hope to look at Holy Scripture as adults so that it can provide us adult answers in an adult world. Hey, friends, we are no longer talking about Job. There's a ton of those episodes. If you'd like to go back, we'd love for you to check those out. This week, though, we are starting a new study on the prophecy of a guy from the the 400s B.C., a guy named Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem after the Diaspora. And so I hope that you'll enjoy this first installment. It's called The Man for the Hour. And friend, I'm going to see you on the other side. So we, uh, we are beginning a new chapter, or new study rather, tonight. Staying in Hebrew Scripture, staying in what Christians uh, often call the Old Testament. Staying in Hebrew Scripture, we're going to look at the story that's contained within the book of Nehemiah. Uh, We're going to actually get more in depth next week on the book and when it was written and what the purpose of the book is historically. Uh, Tonight, we're actually, I just want to jump into the actual character of this dude, Nehemiah, tonight. So we'll get into the other uh, particulars about the historical facts about the writing of Nehemiah, which is very fascinating, mainly because uh, Nehemiah is a bit unique. In uh, Hebrew scripture, because it's pretty well believed that the character Nehemiah was a real person, that he was, in fact, a, a, someone who was in the royal household of Artaxerxes, the Persian emperor, who we abs- or king, who we absolutely know existed. So uh, it's very interesting. It does have a little bit of uniqueness. Uh, it's also tied with the book that comes right before it, Ezra. Believed uh, to, for those to have originally been one scroll. The two scrolls of Ezra and Nehemiah uh, were originally one, and then it got uh, cut up into two books. Uh, so he's a real person. He talks about real things that really happened. Uh, and he's actually the writer of the account. Like, m- not like Job last week, right? The story of Job is not written by Job. Uh, this is written first person, probably written about 445 B.C. So, again, we'll get more into the historical part of it next week, which is fascinating, I promise. 
Uh, but we're going to turn tonight to the first chapter of Nehemiah. And if you don't know where Nehemiah is in the Bible, there's Ezra and Nehemiah. The two prophets come together on common subject. We just talked about that. Ezra, Ezra Nehemiah, Esther, Job, then come the Psalms. So if you find the Psalms, just go to the left-hand side of your Bible a few books and you'll find it. Not too hard. Just work your way back a couple books. Title of our story... Um, Tonight is going to be, please come in, so have a seat. The title of our story tonight, we're looking at the story of uh, Nehemiah, is the man of the hour. And so let's begin here, verse 1, chapter 1, prophecy of Nehemiah, Hebrew scripture. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some men which had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity, about how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, things are not going well for those who returned to the provinces of Judah. They're in great trouble and distress. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, For days I mourned, fasted, prayed to the God of heaven. Then I, Nehemiah says, said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people, Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yet even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave through your servant Moses. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, Then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for not my name to be honored. People you rescued by your great power and your strong hand are your servants. So Lord, please, Nehemiah says, hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today for making the king, Artaxerxes, favorable to me. Put it in his heart to be kind to me. In those days, he says, I was the cupbearer. Now I've heard you, I'm sure you might have heard it before. What, you know, what the church needs, or even in a national or a political context. You know, if I were running the country, if I were president, I'd do ABC. Or, you know, a very common that we, one we might hear is if I was that kid's parents, right? I'd XYZ. Regardless of whatever environment we uh, find ourselves, we're surrounded by people who we can classify as gripers, complainers, self-proclaimed prophets, backseat drivers. Like they just know everything, but they're not in the driver's seat. Think all of us that would acknowledge in our simple fall in humanity that's very easy to analyze, to scrutinize, to talk about all the problems in the world and in the church worldwide, or even in the church locally, right? But what the hour in which this character, Nehemiah, 
about 445 B.C. In this hour, what God needed more than anything, more than talk or advice, it needed someone to not worry about all the problems under the sun, but to actually take action. In Nehemiah's time, as the people whom were scattered among the nations begin to return to Jerusalem, Nehemiah is the man of the hour, man of action. And what he did was he saw that the problem in Jerusalem, right, that there's no wall, but the wall is down, he became distressed about it. He analyzed it, he scrutinized it, and he felt a great burden on his own heart. But he didn't stop just there wallowing in his self-pity. He got up in the midst of his grief, And he took action. He did something about it. Now let me lay down very early in the study that there is a spiritual principle here. There are many, 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 many spiritual lessons that we can derive from the story of Nehemiah and the building of the walls, the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem, right? But here is the first fundamental principle that we're going to really focus on in this study. And that is that whenever God wants to get work done, God goes to people who are willing to do the work. He lays hold of people who are willing to do something about it. To feel that burden on their heart that never goes away and then decides to do something about it. In Nehemiah's day, there was work to be done for Jehovah. And although... As we look at the history and the context of this little book, there's a small remnant of people who had already returned to Jerusalem. But even though there was a small remnant that had returned, it was still tons of work that needed to be done to rebuild Jerusalem to what it was before it fell. For in 536 B.C., we know that Zerubbabel and Joshua brought about five, or, sorry, about 50,000 uh, Jews back back to Israel. And then in 516, they rebuilt the temple. And in 457, there's a small revival under the prophet Ezra, whose prophecy is just before Nehemiah. But now we've reached 445. And it's a new day. It's a new hour. It's a new generation of the people of God. And God was looking for a man For this particular hour, for this particular time, someone to go to the ruined city walls in Jerusalem, right, which signify safety and order. You can only imagine in the ancient world, right? And the man that God was going to turn to in this hour is our hero, old Nehemiah. Now, who was Nehemiah? As we look through the book, we will find three characteristics that I'd like to uh, talk about, about Nehemiah tonight. Right? First of all, in chapter 1, we find that he's the king's cupbearer. Now, when he hears this call from God to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, that's where we find him. That's where we find his job is, the cupbearer. Right? Then he will become Nehemiah the builder. And then throughout this story, we'll find that he will go go from being Nehemiah the builder to Nehemiah the governor of the city. 
actually overruling the affairs of the city of Jerusalem, both both uh, politically, uh, religiously, socially within the city. But here in chapter one, right here in chapter one, before all of that stuff, we find him as the cupbearer of the king, King Artaxerxes. Now the cupbearer is not like a well, like a cup isn't like a just a cup and saucer. That's not what's going on in the ancient world. Uh, the cupbearer had actually great responsibility. In fact, someone said that it was a position of great influence. Nehemiah would have been a confidant to the king. The king in his quiet hours, when he felt free and relaxed, more than likely would bounce ideas off of Nehemiah. So he needed to be somebody qualified with pretty good intellect and great political aptitude. Right? Why was he so trusted? The cupbearer is also the person who tastes it before the king does to make sure that it's not poison. Okay? So, Nehemiah would have been in a very intimate position, so to speak, with King Artaxerxes to give him all types of advice on great matters within his kingdom. Let me say this, though. The reason why God turned to Nehemiah was not his position within the royal court. The reason why God turned to Nehemiah to be this man of the hour were the characteristics that we'll see in chapter 1. I want to bring this before you this evening. What are these characteristics? Three of them. One, Nehemiah was a man of burden. He was a man upon the burden of God's desire weighed heavy on his heart. Two, he was a man of prayer. He put the burden in his heart into the articulation of the language of heaven and pray before the throne of grace. Three, I hope that we also see, be a man of action. He wasn't just a man who knew what to do and knew what to pray for what needed to be done, but he was also a man who was willing to get up on his feet, do something about it. Because of these characteristics, we're calling Nehemiah the man of the hour. How different the story of Nehemiah might end up being. The two are just incredibly super uh, wedded. How differently may it have all turned out if God had turned out that for his guy not to be a guy like Nehemiah. Someone of great spiritual caliber, spiritual character. I think if ever a crisis hour matched a man for the time, we're going to see, I hope that I'll be able to illuminate, this character, Nehemiah. Because the city that Nehemiah found was in ruins. The state of dereliction within the city of Jerusalem was horrific for them. It was demoralizing for them. And it was dangerous for them. It's not only the man that makes the story or the woman, not only the person that makes the story, right? But it's also the story that makes the person. Circumstances that we find ourselves in often betray our true character, show our true colors. Many things that come into our life that we think might be breaking us happen to turn out making us. Now, Nehemiah will give us a graphic lesson about the truths that lie in the heart about the true service to God. And let me say this. If you heed these principles, you will be 
a successful builder of spiritual things and great things for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's deal with this first. The first characteristic that I want to point out. One, that he was, Nehemiah, a man of burden. Verses 1 to 3 show us that he lived in a state of dereliction around him. Psalm 79 describes what the city was like after it had been taken into captivity and after the people had returned. This was the spirit of the situation. Friends, just listen. Psalm 79. Oh God, pagan nations have conquered your land, your special possession. They have defiled your temple and made Jerusalem a heap of ruins. They have left the bodies of your servants as food for the birds of heaven. The flesh of your godly ones have become food for wild animals. Blood has flowed like water all around Jerusalem. No one is left to bury the dead. We are mocked by our neighbors. and We are the object of scorn and derision to all of those around us. Such was the situation. Things hadn't gotten any better, according to Nehemiah's hearing, since people had come back in the land. For Jerusalem, being a city of pride and glory, of praise, it had become a city of shame and reproach, second to none in the nation. Now, Nehemiah here is the story of the rebuilding of this wall around the city of Jerusalem, and he will do it very quickly. It's going to take 52 days and it'll be done. It's a great kind of miracle that happens within the story. It's what we're going to discuss as we go through the chapter, the rebuildings of the walls and the challenges of which Nehemiah faces. We must also understand before we need to go further, right, that, that ancient walls serve significant purposes in ancient cities, right? Let me turn, stay right where you're at, Nehemiah 1. Uh, let me turn to Deuteronomy 22 that I might read a verse from the law. Uh, to you to understand the principle of the wall around a house we find in Hebrew scripture when it comes to the law. Okay, this is this is you might think, what are you talking about? Just give me a second. Okay, Deuteronomy 22, verse 8. And Moses gave the people from God, Moses gave the people from God this instruction When you build a new house, you must build a railing around the roof. That way, you will not be considered guilty of murder if someone falls off the roof. The idea of safety, the idea of protection, so that no one on top of the roof, these flat roofs that we find in the Middle East, right? That, so no one that's on top of the roof, your roof, would ever fall, therefore their blood would not be on your hands. It would be if you didn't build a fence around the wall of your roof. Sorry, yeah, a wall around your roof. But what we do need to realize is that in ancient times, even well, even in uh, New Testament times, we find this in the New Testament, uh, the, roof, the roof was kind of like a bachelor's pad. Uh, it might even be the, I mean, I know it's not really the same with regard to enclosure, but it would be more like, a, it could be a man cave uh, thought of today um not only for bachelors but for married people and families great 
generations of relatives. The roof was a place of communion. We read in 1 Samuel 9 that uh, Samuel communed with Saul on top of a house. A place of communion where people could get away from the family or the affairs of the household. And commune with one another about business matters rather and about details. It was a place of retirement. You read quite humorously for some. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 9. It is better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than with a brawling woman in a wide house. It's true by the way. The idea of retirement, getting away from it all, whatever all might be. A special place of communion, a special place of retirement. Then we go to the New Testament, Acts chapter 10, verse 9. We read these words. The next day, Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, and Peter went up to a flat roof to pray. It was also a place of prayer. Because you could get away from all the noise, right? You'd be under the sky. You'd have the wonders of nature. You'd feel nearer to God. You remember the Lord often went up to the top of a mountain to pray. But in Matthew 10 and 27, we also read that the housetop was a place of testimony. I mean, Jesus said, what I whisper in your ear, shout from the housetops for all of the people to hear. It was a place to stand and be heard and herald news, whether good or bad. What I want us to see here is that the housetop This wall was put around a living area, right? Maybe a study area, a place of meditation, an area of communion, an area of repose, of prayer, of testimony. But if you neglected the wall around your rooftop, that special place becomes a very dangerous place. Even a fatal place when the walls are not there to protect them. Even the young. Especially the young, right? And the careless who fall over the edge. Now, please retain that thought in your mind. Because the same principle, I believe, we could find in the building of city walls around cities for protection and for security, right? Primarily, the purpose of the wall allowed people in Jerusalem to cultivate their spiritual lives without outside interference from other nations who had pagan gods, Right? But we need to understand this about this wall. If we don't understand what the importance of the wall is, then I'm telling you guys, the story of Nehemiah is going to be boring. Right? So we really have to get this right. The, the reason why the rebuilding of this wall is so important is because it, when rebuilt, it makes the city of Jerusalem again a place of safety, not only physically, but spiritually as well. Super important. The restoration of God's people to their home, right? He's starting to get them back home. He needs to make them safe, not physically, not only physically, but spiritually as well, right? And we have, as Christians, with those within the Christian tradition, We have all kinds of different uh, little fences, so to speak, that we put around our spiritual lives. Um, Baptism is one. Reading of God's word, prayer daily before God, the witnessing, fellowship, the breaking of bread with people. We could go on and on and on and on and talk about the different exercises that we all take. 
right, to encourage our spiritual well-being in the New Testament. Right? They're there for our protection, for the cultivating of our relationship with Jesus. Hey, friend, if you've made it this far in the podcast, I was wondering if I could just take a second to ask a quick favor. However it is that you're listening to us, if you could subscribe to us, however that you're listening, if you could subscribe or follow to let yourself know whenever we have new episodes coming out. More importantly, if you could rate us, if you could provide us a review on however it is that you're listening, it really helps us out. It also gives us uh, some feedback. Just to let us know you're out there listening, you appreciate what we're doing. It's very, very kind to have caught the feedback that we've received from people so far, and we would love to hear from you. So if you could rate the podcast, if you could review the podcast, please make sure to hit subscribe or follow. That way you'll catch all of the new content here. We certainly would appreciate uh, all of it. Now back to our story tonight. Now before we go on, to this tonight and in subsequent weeks, to Nehemiah's struggle that we're going to find with him rebuilding the wall, maybe before we get into those struggles, we stop for just a second and we think, uh, why don't we examine perhaps the state of our own spiritual walls? How are they? How is your communion with God? How are your quiet times of retirement with God? How's your prayer life? How are you being influenced by those outside your spiritual walls? Are some of the gates maybe left open that you've allowed to lay open so that the enemy might squeeze through? Have the roots of weeds of compromise grown into the foundations of our spiritual walls and causing to almost be ready to come tumbling down? Listen, friends, if our spiritual walls, our spiritual disciplines are in need of repair, whether it's just one brick in that wall or a whole section of a wall, now is the time. You can be that same person of the hour. Now is the time to implement spiritual principles that we can find from God's man of the hour here, Nehemiah. Right? First of his characteristics, again, he was a man of burden. Wall building didn't begin with the mixing of cement. Right? Let me tell you where it began. It began with a burden on the heart of Nehemiah. He was called to build the wall. But it started first and foremost when he began to weep. He had to mourn, he had to fast. He had to afflict himself because of the awful ruin people of God were in. And no other preparation for the work would do that, right? And I don't know, perhaps, if there's anybody contemplating going into the work of God here, right? But I hope in the way that we're all in the work of God, some shape or fashion. But do you have the burden? of the dereliction that the human condition has on others' lives. Do you carry that burden? And I'm not just talking about the unsaved, 
right? Maybe even more importantly, I'm talking about the saved who are still stuck in the ruins of the sin of their lives. Do we have a burden to help relieve that dereliction? Nehemiah is not a person to just paper over the cracks. In fact, Nehemiah went and met the people in Jerusalem. He did not attempt to gloss over in any way their spiritual condition, the condition of the walls. Right? Let me turn to chapter 2. You stay in 1. Let me turn to chapter 2, verse 17. We'll talk about this again next time. Uh, But now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king. And they replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the work. He saw things, how they really were in Jerusalem, right? And uh, in contrast, I think, to the... uh, to the prophet and judge Eli, he refused to recognize Eli. He refused to recognize the need of restraint, the walls of discipline in his life and in the life of his sons, which ends up drawing his own curse from God. Because of that, he brought about reproach and distress and disaster on Israel. All right? For Samuel reads that his sons were made themselves vile and he restrained them not. He was unwilling, unwilling, sorry, to recognize the need for the hour. It could be argued that I think that there's a spiritual stupor, just, I mean, within the Christian church, just, I don't mean the Christian church, just, I mean, within the body of believers, right? That whenever you start to mention subjects like this, they think, you know, wait, we're not all that bad. Things aren't as bad as you're making out. Nehemiah was a man with a burden because he saw things for how they really were. And when Hananiah's brother came with the terrible news, all of this had happened, I'm sure Hananiah had a burden on his heart too. He had seen it all. Nehemiah's just hearing it. Hananiah's actually been there. But did Hananiah allow his burden to make him do something about it? Well, we, we don't know for sure. Right? We can all shake our heads at times. Maybe we can even see what's going on around us. We can sigh over the state of the congregation of God, the people of God, just like Hannah and I did. But the question is, it's quite another matter to actually do something about it. There's such a long journey, friends, in our lives between knowledge and practice. The fact is that Nehemiah was perhaps 700 miles away from the situation in Jerusalem. And he's in this uh, palace in Persia called Shushan. Is that right? Shushan. But it didn't matter that he was that far away. It didn't matter that he didn't see it for himself. He was burdened about it. We don't have to be in the midst of all the sin in the world to be burdened about the sin in the world. Friends, in all of his luxury and his prestigious place within the royal palace, none of that mattered to him. It didn't deter him from 
the burden. There's no indication in verse 1 or 2 before the news comes to him that he, he had had any intention before hearing the bad news to ever leave, to ever abandon his, his uh, privileged position. But, but by the means of what might not have been more than just a casual inquiry, just, a, just shooting the breeze in verse 2. Just very casually he was to ask concerning the Jews that escaped. He's only asking about home, right? How are things back home? And he hears about disaster. And it has overwhelming effects on his soul. In verse 4 it says, Nehemiah, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned certain days, fasted, and prayed before the God of heaven. He had a heart for the testimony of God's people. He was like Moses, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than enjoy his personal pleasures, but just for a season in life. Here's the next question. He was a burden man. State of dereliction, right? But what did that burden drive him to do? What was the first work that comes from the burden? What was the first thing he knew to do once he knew he had to do something? Pray. He was a man of prayer. And in verses 4 to 9, a supplication of divine, to rather divine power. He had seen the state of dereliction and how, and, and now makes a supplication to God. And instead of doing what we might do and run to the king, King Artaxerxes, I've served you for many, many years. I've given you faithful advice all of these years. Can you give me a bit of advice and do something, maybe wield the arm of power a little bit for me? He didn't go to the king. He went to the king of kings. If Nehemiah tells me anything, it tells me that Nehemiah is a man of prayer. There's about ten prayers that we'll find in the book of Nehemiah. It starts with prayer. The book does, and it ends with prayer. And in verse 4, it says this. He sat down, he wept, he mourned days, he fasted, he prayed before the God of heaven. In verse 6, he says, as he cries, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. He prayed, Nehemiah did, night and day. Have you ever had such a burden on your heart that you just prayed over it night and day. He says, uh, he prayed weeping. When was the last time you prayed weeping? He fasted, right? You, okay, you can tell the last time I did that, right? But he was a man of prayer. If you look at the dates uh, in this, they do, people who are a lot smarter than me have more time to do this kind of stuff. It says that he prayed for four months like this. Now, I'm not sure about the fasting. I'm not sure if he fasted a meal. It doesn't, the particulars of his fasting are not uh, recorded in that much detail, right? But if we look at the date here in verse 1, it says in the month of Kislev, which is the month of December, right? Well, mostly for us. And if you go to chapter 2, verse 1, it says the month of Nisan, that in the month of Nisan, his answer had come. And in that space, 
between December and Nisan, April, four months. Grief, fasting, praying, weeping for four months. It so altered, apparently, his appearance that King Artaxerxes asked, what's wrong? What is wrong with you? Right, we'll see this next week. He'll say, what's wrong with your countenance? You look like doo-doo. He started, right? And, and what was happening? He had started the work already. Because prayer is real work. And it is, it is the only work in preparation for doing God's work. Before a finger had been lifted to rebuild those walls, and Nehemiah, still 700 miles away, we find him on his knees. Now, we're doing a work over here, but what are prayers for? You guys may have never heard this uh, theologian preacher, a guy named Chuck Swindell, says very revealingly, for many of us, prayer is too often an afterthought. Something rattled off at ribbon cuttings when the work had already been done. Many great leaders of our time have philosophized about the meaning of true leadership. Well, we see it here, I think, in Nehemiah. President Harry Truman said a leader is a person who has the ability to get others to do what they don't want to do and get them to like it. Crossing over from the politics to the military realm uh, from Britain in World War II, Field Marshal Montgomery said the capacity and will to rally men and women to common purpose is the character which inspires confidence. To rally men and women, to influence them to do something. When you read about the great leaders of even our own century, right? Uh, you'll find that they tell us that great leadership is found in the capacity to influence others to do something that needs to be done. Influence is the key to leadership. Now we ask this in the spiritual realm. Right? How can we influence people? Right? And let me tell you what some of the people are doing in the church world today. They're manipulating folks to get them. They're making threats. From their pulpits, they'll say things like, God will curse you if you don't do it. Or if you do do it, I guess. Some people are being bribed spiritually to do what religious Leaders want them to do. Other churches, right, bringing in gimmicks. We, we all know what we're talking about here. They try to titillate people, try to get them to do what they want. There's only one way to gain influence over God, over the people of God, rather. Over people that don't belong to God. Missionary Hudson Taylor, another guy from Britain who spent time in Hong Kong back in the day. Hudson Taylor said, uh, it is possible to move men through, to God through prayer alone. It is possible to move men and women to God by prayer alone. The fulcrum that moves God and this world is prayer. If you could analyze this prayer, right, you can find this if you want. Uh, you go home and see in verse 5, praise. Right? He put out of his mind all the fears about doing the work 
And praise did it to him. That's why I'm always trying to remind us to praise the Lord before you do anything else. Because not only does it put God in God's rightful place, it also casts away the shadows and the doubts and the fears that maybe we've come into this deal with. Then in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 1, he confesses to God. Super important. And notice his words. He puts himself in the equation. I. And he uses the plural, we. He's saying that it's not just all these people. Right? It's not just saying... Oh, I want to pray to you, God, about those people. But he's actually putting himself in the boat, in the basket. He's standing back and saying, what are you doing? You've been there for years over there in Jerusalem. Why, you know, why can't you pull your fingers out of your ears? And he puts himself in these problems, in these situations. He admits his own failures. In verse 8 to 10, he goes in faith, right? I don't have time to go much, too much into this. In, in verse 8 to 10, he claims the promises of God are still faithful from God. The promises that we find in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, right? All the blessings we find in those two books that God talks about, all the blessings that would be uh, promised to the people of Israel by God, right? And he goes to God, he goes to God in prayer we prayed like this, Lord, would you see our need and look at the promises that you've given us? If we prayed like that. And it all crescendos in this request, this petition, all leading up that God would remove the problem. The problem and that God would Move, we're going to find, move this king, Artaxerxes, to make and help Nehemiah do something about the problem in Jerusalem. Now, thirdly, and briefly here tonight as we wrap up, a man of burden, a man of prayer, a man of action. He didn't only see the state of disrepair, the fate of of dereliction, right? make a supplication for divine power, but he also made a sacrificial act of devotion. Because he not only sees the problem and wants to recognize why the problem exists and that God and God alone can help him fix that problem, right? Not only does he do all of that stuff, which is holy and great, but then he goes one step further. And this is where we often shut down. Because Nehemiah takes it one step further. This is the action part when he says, here, send me. Not only do I see things for what they are, not only do I understand God's hand in all of this, even when our circumstances don't seem like it, And I recognize that God can and will do something about it, but he needs someone to help God do those things. Send me. That's most of the time where we keep our hands down and hope somebody else will step in the gap. 
not you, beautiful people, but others. You, you know who I'm talking about. Them. No, no. All right, so he's a man of burden. He's a man of prayer. Uh, he's a man of action. Because he makes a supplication. He says, here, send me. I'll go. Even though he enjoyed security, he had comfort and, and uh, ease in the palace. He had the prestige of being in the royal household. But you know what? More than any of that, uh, King Artaxerxes, prison, uh, Persian emperors during this time, weren't just kings like Queen Elizabeth or whatever, right? They, they were thought to be God on earth. And this guy, Nehemiah, despite his heritage of being a, con- a member of a conquered race of people, ends up in intimate contact with the king of the Persian Empire. How cush do you think Nehemiah's life was? I mean, for a eunuch, but still. Not bad. Right? But you know what? His love of God and for God was worth so much more than all of those other things put together. And that what we're going to find that makes Nehemiah a difference maker, a person for the hour, is that he was willing to pay the ultimate price and give himself to the tasks of the law that needed to be done. There's not too many Nehemiahs about today, unfortunately. Right? We are all experts in seeing what needs to be done, but how many of us are willing to actually undertake the task? Because our friend Nehemiah here, we're going to find, he didn't just weep, he did more than pray. Right? He made himself available to God to get the job done. You see, people like Nehemiah are not merely content to get answers to prayers. They want to be the answer to prayers. Right? They want to have faith, not just in that God will, but to be a part of doing it themselves, even to pray to God that other men would be moved and to be burdened. Where are we? Well, let me tell you, friends, God still needs a man and a woman for an hour just like this. Samuel Chadwick, a Methodist preacher, once used the following words in a prayer. Oh, Lord, make us intensely spiritual. Right? That's all our prayers should be, right? Isn't it? We, we, want, we should want to be intensely spiritual. And then here's the next few words of that prayer. But keep us perfectly natural. Are we intensely natural in our deep spirituality? Right, let me give you the last words of this prayer, which I think is beautiful. Not only to make us intense spiritually... Keep us perfectly natural, but make us thoroughly practical. Then we'll be builders for God. Today, friends, regardless of how you interpret this statement, 
regardless of what your politics may even be. I can tell you right now that pretty certain everybody in this room and maybe everybody listening to this podcast will agree that today is a day of reproach for God's people. The great city of the church of the living God is no longer beautiful Zion. Perfection of beauty. The Israelite people, the Jews then, like the people of God today, are no longer powerful with God and men like Jacob who wrestled with God and became a prince with both of them. But here in Nehemiah, in such a situation for the hour that he's in, one man, one man ends up making all of the difference. And we will see, friends, in the weeks ahead, that he took these Jewish people from great reproach in chapter 1, verse 3, to great rejoicing. In chapters 12 and 13. Friends, God is still seeking men and women for this hour. Willing to sacrifice for the work. So I ask you, are you available to receive the burden? To give yourself to prayer and to sacrifice your life to the work? If so, then you too can be God's man and woman of the hour. Any questions? You know, as we begin this series on Nehemiah, I can't help but just going back to that initial spiritual lesson that we learn from the prophecy of Nehemiah right off the bat. That God needs us, God wants to work in cooperation with us in in God's creation. But are we willing, first of all, are we willing to allow that burden to be placed on our hearts? And once we do, are we willing to do something about it? Are we willing to meet God halfway in the participation of God's creation? Are we willing to do our part to bring God's will to the world? The thing that we, at least on Sunday mornings in suits and ties and smelling like Brute 33, all at least say that we want are we willing to put in the work we're going to find that nehemiah is willing to put in the work and the work that he ends up doing is a great one hey friends i hope until next week i hope you'll enjoy us and you will join us back here again we'll continue our study on nehemiah until then friend be blessed